0: Dante wants to hear from these two propped up like pans in the 10th of the evil pouches, and he's about to hear from the first one, the one we presume who questioned why they even wanted to know who they were. Hi, I'm Mark Scarborough. This is the podcast Walking with Dante. If some of that makes sense, then... You're good on the journey with us. If none of that makes sense, then wow, you better go back and catch up with us because we are way down in lowest hell. We are at Inferno Canto 29 lines, 109 through 123. There are 179 episodes behind us. You can come on this quantum walk anytime you want, just moving at your own pace. But we're moving on. And one of these two down in this pit who had been scraping their scabs off with their nails, is about to tell who he is, and it's a whole problem in and of itself. So let's get to the passage, Canto 29, lines 109 through 123. You can find it on my website, markscarbro.com. You can read along and even drop a comment there about this episode or any interpretive questions you have. I was from Arezzo answered one of them, and Albero of Siena made me get put to the fire, but the reason I died didn't push me down here. Sure enough, I did say to him as a joke, I know how to rise up and fly through the air. That one had the will, but not much smarts, and the dupe wanted me to show him the art of flight. But only because I couldn't turn him into Daedalus, he had me set on fire by one who loved him as a son. But into this last pouch of ten, for the alchemy I practiced in the world, I was damned by Minos, who cannot make a mistake. And I said to the poet, was there ever a people so vain as the Sienese. Certainly not even the French by a long shot. That's where we're going to end it. With an insult at the French from Dante. Ever Dante and the French. And the enmity between them. Well, I don't know if the French feel the same enmity toward Dante, but wow, he certainly feels it toward them. We're going to end it there. And we're going to talk about who this figure is and why this figure has so plagued commentators for 700 years. So let's get started. The figure identifies himself as from Arezzo, but he doesn't really give a name. And this is what's so interesting. If you remember in the last episode of the podcast that Pilgrim had said, so that your memory isn't erased up above in the world of the living, tell me who you are. That's a bad paraphrase, but basically that's what he said. This guy doesn't actually give his name the name has had to be filled in by commentators over the centuries and it's interesting that while dante wants to know who this is this guy hedges his bets and doesn't say his name now he tells a lot of information about himself and it may be enough to actually make an identification of him but for now we should just note that he seems to shy away from a direct reference to himself he himself engages in paraphrastic phrasing. Remember Dante's favorite technique, walking around something without naming it so that A, I can prove to you how smart you are because you get the reference. So B, I can show off my wit and talent by by talking about all the details of something without actually naming it. Remember this whole technique of paraphrases? Isn't it interesting that this speaker in the falsifiers, uses one of Dante's privileged and favorite techniques, paraphrastic phrasing, to talk about himself. So, who is himself? Well, let me try to answer that. All the commentators say that this is da d'Arezzo, but I have to tell you that is not verified, and there are hundreds of reasons to not accept that this guy's name is Griff Alino. First of all, the accounts are wild and divergent about this figure. And I just want to give you a few of these early commentator accounts. One very early commentator who we talk about all the time, Ben Venuto, has a whole story in his commentary on Inferno on this figure. And let me just read you the story from Ben Venuto's commentary on Inferno. Benvenuto says, let me briefly tell you a funny story. In the noble city of Siena at about the time of our author... Dante, there lived a certain man, Griffolino D'Arezzo, a man very well versed in the science of nature and in alchemy. He very astutely became a close friend of Albero, the son of the bishop. Oh, you should stop right there. The son of the bishop. I want to talk to you about that in a second. The son of the bishop, from whom he shrewdly knew how to squeeze money and large gifts. With his extraordinary gift of speech, he promised to enable that simple fool to accomplish great prodigies. Among other things, once, while this lightheaded albero was admiring and praising Griffolino and telling him what a great genius he was, Griffolino said, "'Indeed, I do know how to do things that cannot be done by natural means. What would you say if you clearly saw me fly through the air like a bird?' The rich Albero, who was wealthy at the expense of the crucifix, begged him to teach him the art of flying, teach him who by nature was so disposed to flying because of his already empty head. <laughs> <laughs> Love that detail from Benvenuto. This guy you knows he wants to fly because his head's already so light, you know floats off his body. Therefore, he said a great deal and promised more about Griffolino was making fun of him and only treated him to such words. Finally, realizing he'd been deluded and tricked, Albero went to complain to his father, the bishop, who became indignant. He set up an inquiry against Griffolino for practicing magic, of which, in fact, he was ignorant. And as a practitioner of magic, he was burned at the stake. That's Benvenuto's story that he tells in his Latin commentary on Inferno early on. Should we talk Trust this story. I don't know. It seems very convenient. It seems uh, as it has, as if it fills in the details. But do we think that Benvenuto actually knows the details? I don't know. Uh, this Griffolino figure is living in 1259. He's still alive in about 1259. That's quite a long ways away from Benvenuto. Even though Benvenuto is writing relatively soon after Dante's death... It's still going to add up to about 80 years. And 80 years from the death of somebody to this moment in the Middle Ages is a long time for so many details to be kept so crucial to the narrative itself, besides the joke in it. You might have paused at the son of the bishop, and I said I'm going to talk to you more about that. In case you don't know, there were married bishops, even in Dante's day. People took church orders after their marriage, and this was allowed. So, there were married priests, and some of these priests would undoubtedly get elevated up church hierarchy, and some of them would even become bishops. The stated rationale here is that once you took orders for the priesthood you couldn't divorce your wife but instead you promised essentially to live in a celibate marriage this was still going on in Dante's state remember the priest the, the celibacy of the priesthood is not settled until about the 10th century so there are plenty of married priests before the 10th century and then it gets into this funky world where we have people converting and entering church orders, but they're already married, so they agree to live a celibate married. So it may not be as nefarious as it sounds here, the son of the bishop. I realize to our modern ears where we're used to just fully celibate clergy who have never been married, it sounds very salacious, but it may not be. Other commentators add other details. One anonymous Florentine commentator early on claims that the whole reason Griffolino was going to teach Albero how to fly was so that Albero could fly into any woman's bedroom in Siena. that little detail again it's really nice it's beautiful for the story another early commentary the oak Timo Comento, really early commentary, again, on comedy, this time written in a dialect of Italian, says that this fellow was from Arezzo, as he says in the text. A Sienese named Albero had him burned not for alchemy, but by accusing him of being a conjurer of devils and a heretic. Albero did this because the Aretine you know, the guy from Arezzo, said, said to him one day, if I wanted, I could make you fly like a bird. Albero wanted Griffolino to teach him how to fly, but Griffolino answered that he just said it as a joke. Albero got angry, and later in Florence, he had him burned by an inquisitor who was from Siena and claimed that Albero was his son. Some people say he had him burned by the bishop of Siena, who was his father. Again, so many stories from the early accounts that fill in so many of the details, but some of these accounts are happening now up to a 100 years after this Griffolino's death. And in the Middle Ages, a 100 years is an age, especially for a minor figure like this. There may be a more subtle way to think about this character, who is so often identified as Griffolino. But before that, let me just pose another question. What is this need to identify everyone in comedy? Why is there such a push from 700 years of commentators to nail everybody down as an actual historical figure? Do I think Dante based his characters on actual historical figures? Yes. Do I also think Dante was a consummate artist? Yes. Do I think some of these figures in Inferno bear little resemblance to actual people? Hmm, I call your attention to Ulysses in the Eighth Pit. What is this need to identify every single participant in comedy as an actual living person who somehow interacted with Dante or Dante knew about or Dante knew from the past. I associate this, to be honest with you, with a rage for order, a need, a desperate need to find order in this overwhelming poem. And by allowing it to become historically true or by emphasizing the historical veracity of some of the claims inside the poem itself we find a way to iron it to order it to bring the creases out of it i sit and look at it and think wait a minute why do we need to fill the details in for these figures why can't we let them stand in the poem after all if we push away and identify this figure as griffolino then we miss something that may be very important to this passage. And that is that it's funny. The whole thing is absurdly funny because the Pilgrim just said, hey, so your memory's not erased. Tell me who you are. And this guy then goes into this big paraphrastic story about himself. And it's all about this guy that was his mark, the dupe, you know, Albero. Albero had him put to death, burned alive. But in the end, he got the last laugh on this Albero figure because Albero put him to death, by fire because he promised to make him fly and he couldn't you know uh, this thing with marks they get so angry once they figure out they are actual marks and they put him to death but the last last laugh's on him because i'm i'm not put here for anything i did about flying or magic or outwitting him i was an alchemist (laughs) And that's why I'm here. So, haha, the joke's on him. He didn't even kill me for the right reason. I really honestly think that this whole thing is dripping with irony. And by pushing us out to the historical truth of Grifolino d'Arezzo and trying to say, oh, this is who this is. And oh, this is who Benvenuto says it is. And this is where the commentators all come down and blah, 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 all that stuff. We miss the joke. We, we miss that the passage is super ironic. And here we are at the bottom of hell hearing a funny story about an idiot who wants to learn how to fly and how this guy, well, basically just tricked him really easy. You know, listen, people are gullible and the smart in this world are going to take advantage of the gullible and oh it's a terrible thing and yet at the same time there's a lot of low comedy going on here there's also that problem that This figure, if it is Griffolino or whoever this is, this figure is damned for something that did not actually cause his death up on top. And I think that's important to see that your final resting place in the afterlife may not be determined ultimately by all of your acts on the terrestrial plane this is going to become increasingly important in purgatorio and paradiso we we are going to meet figures who we are going to be astounded to find are in the afterlife amongst the redeemed remember everybody in purgatory and everybody in paradise for sure but everybody in purgatory is among the redeemed two thirds of comedy happen with the redeemed. I realize we've been in Inferno for a long time with the damned, but you have to get your head around the idea that only a third of comedy is taken up with the damned. And after we leave Inferno, there will be little thought to the damned ever again. And we're going to meet some people ahead of us who are going to say, wait a minute, what? How could you have been excommunicated by the church, and here you are in the afterlife among the redeemed? Maybe you're purgating your sins, but you're still on your way to paradise despite your excommunication. And when we get up into paradise, we're going to really run into some people who (laughs) are totally questionable about how they got there and why they're there, and in what manner of way could they possibly have ended up in paradise since... (laughs) They themselves couldn't have even known anything about Jewish or Christian thought in any way. that's down the line and for many discussions ahead. But here it starts, at least with this guy, that your earthly acts do not necessarily reveal your final place in the afterlife. Because while this guy was clearly a grifter, he's really here for alchemy. Alchemy. Let's talk about that for a minute. It is the besetting sin in the Middle Ages for so many. You know, if you've read Chaucer, the Canon's Yeoman's Tale, the tale of the grifting alchemist that almost ends the Canterbury Tale book right before the Parsons tale this unbelievable grifter alchemist who shows up and then goes running away and his servant his yeoman ends up telling a tale that kind of basically says his master is a grifting alchemist why is alchemy so such a problem in the Middle Ages. There are several reasons for this, some cynical and some that reveal something about us. One cynical reason is because alchemists were, of course, waiting to make baser elements into gold. And if they had succeeded at this, they would have challenged the church's hegemony and they would have challenged the political hegemony of their days. If I can turn dirt into gold, dirt that's so absurd okay i'll go with it if i can turn dirt into gold <laughs> To turn lead into gold or other metals into gold mm, suddenly the church's wealth isn't the church's wealth or i just devalued the church a great deal because although well, the church has all that gold stocked up <laughs> hey buddy i can get a lot more than that with the lead and the same with the political rulers of the day so there is a very cynical reason that alchemy is so condemned in the middle ages but also we should think it is a category mistake. What alchemy claims is that base essences can be changed in some fundamental way, and the borders between elements can be blurred. Ultimately, alchemy is a giant category mistake. And let me tell you that nothing makes people as uncomfortable as challenging the notion of where their fence is is or where their boundaries are. Alchemy says your fence isn't in the right place. You thought that there were certain borders to the nature of matter. It's not true. We shouldn't be surprised that the condemnations of alchemy morph over the next 300 years after Dante into the condemnations of witchcraft. Why? Because witchcraft is all about a boundary mistake. And I don't mean a supernatural boundary mistake that the witches call forth supernatural powers onto this earth. I mean about the growing prominence of women in a patriarchal society. Strong women capable of determining their own fates make that patriarchal society sit up and burn women witches. It's not somehow coincidental. These are fundamental category mistakes. And I don't have to push this, but I'm going to push it just for a second. Let me say that nothing makes people in the modern world as nervous as, quote, unquote, challenging the categories of gender. I don't want to get into a huge discussion of that. I just want to say, recognize it for what it is. It's challenging where you think the fence lies. If you want to follow Dante, you have to move your fence. He does. Many and many a time, like here, because poetry is alchemy. right? It's the final pit of fraud, and poetry is the ultimate alchemy. It's taking words and turning them into reality claims. It's taking stories and making them appear true. It's taking a set of building blocks, words, and turning them into something that you're going to claim can carry truth and even reality itself poetry is alchemy. This is why the last pit of fraud is so much about holding on to the pilgrim's humanity and the poet holding on to the poet's humanity. Because in the end, the poet is a falsifier. The poet The poet's very craft is falsification. That's what a fabulist does. That's what Ovid was doing. That, I think, is what Dante knows is going on. That's why he makes a big deal about Ovid being a fabulist two episodes ago in this podcast. That's why these claims of where does the ministress record the deeds of the evil— here in Inferno, in this very book I'm writing, because finally in the end, this falsification here at the end of fraud is super close to Dante's own craft. Listen, there's a lot talk in commentary about why the last pit is the last pit. If you accept that the sins somehow come down in order, and that lust is up near the top because it's really not that bad a sin in this economy, in this theology. It's actually the closest thing to love, which is the nature of God, as we will discover in Purgatorio. It's the closest thing to the nature of God, and so it's way up there toward the top, and the sins are getting worse and worse as we come down. If you accept that as the truth, then how can you have alchemy and lying under oath and impersonating people as the final sin? right before the last circle of hell how i mean how can this be worse than schism how can this be worse than pimping women out how can this be worse than mass murder up amongst the violent or how can this be worse than blasphemy i don't know that i can say it's worse What I can say is if you try to justify this last pit, and I'm going to use words from the last episode of this podcast, if you try to justify this last pit by the narrative of the journey, you're going to have to wrap yourself in knots as to why this is the worst sin, trying to explain why this is the worst sin of fraud. But if you accept the narrative of the fiction then you realize why this is the last bit. Because falsification, alchemy, is as close to the poet's art as we're gonna get. And thus, Minos, a fictional character, who, it says here, cannot make a mistake, Thus is made a parallel to the infallible justice ministress of the Lord on high in the previous passage. Minos, this fictional character, is set on a line with a divinely sanctioned character who carries out the records of justice who cannot make a mistake thereby tying Minos to that infallible justice ministress if you just think about this as the narrative of the fiction not just the narrative of the journey then you'll see why falsification <laughs> is the final pit of fraud. I've posed this question several times going and I pose it one more time. How do you keep your humanity in fraud? How do you keep humanity in hell? Well, here's another way. You can laugh, even in hell. Dante clearly is having fun here. He's loving this Idiot Albero of Siena, who thinks he can learn how to fly. He's loving the joke that's going on here about marks and grifters. And even at the end, was there ever a people so vain as the Sienese? Certainly not even the French by a long shot. Even that, although we may kind of think, wow, that's rough, even that is a joke for Dante. I think you keep your humanity by compassion and by humor. This is why the final it of fraud is funny. It's going to keep being funny. It's going to get really, really desperate and terrible at the start of Canto 30, and then it's going to turn back to being funny again. It's going from scraping off scabs to this. Oh, God, this jerk. Who thought I could teach him how to fly. Can you imagine anybody being that idiotic? Mm. There is a way that keeping your sense of humor, keeping the joke, keeping, dare I say it, comedy, is how you save your humanity, even in the depths of illness, even in the depths of hell. Well, that's a lot to say about a fairly short passage in Inferno. A lot to say about this figure that everybody thinks is Griffolino, but clearly I think is more problematic than that. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> hey I'm just the guy to do it I got no dog in this hunt except I love Dante and I'm not trying to get tenure anywhere so I can just kind of say why do you have to think this is Griffolino? what about the early commentators makes you trust them mm, my answer would, to be, would be not much anyway I hope you have had a good time in this short passage that is actually pretty funny and weird stuff even though it's desperate even though we're in lower hell even even though we're way down here where things are pretty grim. Still, nonetheless, it's not too late to take a shot at the French. I'm Mark Scarborough, and I'll see you next time.